Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. So we were talking about that health care bill that was just released, and we want to bring in Max Neeson, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist covering all things health care. And uh, Max, as Greg was just saying, health care shares are surging. Can you give us a sense of what in this bill that was just released uh, caused this rally? Why is this being viewed as a positive for the health care industry? Um, you know, so I'm just like everybody else, including a, a large number of Republican senators. I'm still making my way through the bill. You haven't um, read all 142 I, pages yet? I, I, you know, I'd like to say I have, but but not quite yet. I, I'm kind of just uh, jumping through looking for snippets. Um, so what it looks like is that this isn't kind of a dramatic departure uh, from what the House passed. There are some modest differences to the subsidies that low-income people get, and um, some of the Medicaid cuts are, are deeper in the long run. But uh, this doesn't diverge dramatically from what people know already. And I guess resolving some of that uncertainty might um, might be causing some of that jump in, in stock prices. Based on what you know, how likely is this to be reconciled with the House bill and actually make it to the president's desk? Um, you know, I, I think that the issue isn't going to be reconciling it with the House bill in this case. It's whether it can get through the Senate because, I mean, the, the really kind of salient detail here is that the Republican senators who have to vote for it have not seen it yet, most of them. So they're kind of grappling it in the same way that um, we are as reporters and, and the country is right now. So there, there are things that some you know conservatives aren't going to like parts of this bill and moderates as well. It's the same problem that's been there from the start politically. Uh, so that's going to have to be worked through in a pretty short time period if they want to vote on it next week. Well, and, and let's talk about the fact that uh, U.S. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said that he would like a vote to come next week, and given the fact that it's just being released now, even to some of Republican, uh, the Republicans' own members in the Senate, um, why do they want to rush this? Um, I, I think the the kind of thing we've learned over the course of the process with the House bill is that it, it, this bill doesn't, or this particular effort, policy effort, does not age well, uh, does not hold up to um, scrutiny or rhetoric particularly well. It does some things that are, are going to be very unpopular, including uh, weakening protections for those with pre-existing conditions in a different way than the House will, but, but it appears to still do so. And uh, cutting Medicaid really substantially, and that's not popular at all. Medicaid does, doesn't just cover low-income people. It also covers uh, kids and a majority of people that are in nursing homes in the United States. So, um, you know, they the point of kind of rushing the processes, potentially getting less political backlash, actually getting it done before senators go back to their districts and get uh, an, an yet another earful about the bill. Well, that's the thing, right? Because of the congressional recess. Yeah, exactly. So Congress is out uh, after next week for a, for a pretty long one. And then again in August. So they uh, they really want to get this done as quickly as they can. Just to play devil's advocate, a lot of Republican Senate leaders have come out and said, look, uh, more money does not necessarily mean better health care. And they're trying to allocate cash and, and, and create the right incentives to create a better health care system. Uh, what's your response to that? Um, I I think that's just kind of typical 
uh, rhetoric that you hear. I mean, of course, government is not always the most efficient way of allocating money. That I don't. I don't think anyone would argue that. But when you cut, in this case, Medicaid by like more than eight hundred billion dollars, people lose a lot of health care. That that's just. That's not an equation you can really contest or argue with. And the same goes for subsidies uh, for for health insurance. Let's uh, get a little more detail from Max Neeson, our uh, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, listening to both uh, Senator Schumer and Senator McConnell. I wanted to begin by asking you, uh, Senator Schumer talked about affordable insurance. And I'm wondering, he made certain claims about this will do away with affordable insurance for people. Is that accurate? I think it'll definitely be accurate for for certain subsets of the population. And the ones that come to mind are uh, people that get subsidies under the the ACA that will get less generous subsidies under under, – they changed the acronym. I I think it's the BCRA now. Um, And uh, the other one that comes to mind is people that lose coverage under Medicaid expansion or Medicaid in general and also people that have certain conditions while the Senate bill appears to – maintain a prohibition against charging people with pre-existing conditions more, which was uh, – states could waive that under the House version. It does maintain um, the ability for states to get rid of the requirement that states – that uh, insurers cover certain essential health benefits like mental health care, for example. So you can't charge someone with mental health care issues more, but you can offer a plan that doesn't have mental health care in it and make it much less expensive and the plan with that kind of care much more expensive. So effectively, with people with those sort of long-term expensive issues, health care will become unaffordable potentially uh, in some states. Max, I'm struck by the GOP's uh, Senate proposal to include an additional $50 billion over four years to stabilize insurance exchanges. This was exactly the provision uh, the Republicans have criticized in the past as a way to keep insurers in the marketplace. Why did they reverse course and include this? Uh, I think it was an effort to kind of build a, a broader consensus around the bill, um, you know, some more near-term stability and and more cynically, um, it just means that going into the next couple of electoral cycles, you'll have a more stable market. A lot of the impact of this bill, the kind of big shift from the House bill, is that it's pushed out further. So the big Medicaid cuts, the ending of the Medicaid expansion, uh, it's pushed out a little bit further. The big changes to the ACA as well, um, and that's kind of evidenced by these these funds. So that might create a problem with the conservative wing of the party. They, they especially hated these payments when they were part of the ACA. They won't like it. That uh, something that could be described, uh, I, I imagine, as something of a bailout uh, by by that wing of the party. It's now in this bill, so that might be a problem. Thank you so much for joining us. Max Neeson, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. Uh, you can follow his work at Bloomberg.com slash Gadfly. And I'm sure, uh, Max, you will be opining on this proposal. Uh, Senate Republicans, just to reiterate, uh, did release their health care proposal to replace Obamacare, providing an additional $50 billion over four years to stabilize insurance exchanges. This is the plan that has been long awaited that uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell would like to have a vote on as soon as next week. And it will affect a broad swath of the U.S. economy. Economy. 
Right now, we are looking at oil prices that are finding some stability after a pretty significant swoon after falling to the lowest levels uh, in 10 months. It is rising just a bit with the uh, value of crude going to 43, a little over $43 a barrel. To get a better sense of the direction of these prices, I want to bring in John Kilduff. He is founding partner of Again Capital in New York. John, have we seen the lows this year for crude? It's hard to tell at this moment not to uh, cop out or avoid your question. Yesterday's sell-off to 42.05 a barrel was significant. It matches up with the low from November, so there's a potential for technical traders to see that as a double bottom, and I'm having to abide that at the moment. But really, I think the path of least resistance is still lower down into the upper 30s. Upper 30s. How long would it stay there? That's a good question, Pim. I think it would stay there um, for a good amount of time. What, what the market is right now in the process of doing is is calling and taking OPEC to task for not doing enough. So they're challenging. The market gets into these modes where they challenge the producing community, sometimes on the upside. Right now it's on the downside uh, to react. And the Saudis apparently are scrambling right now to to find out the best way to react to this and to get the prices back up. John, when I talk with uh, bulls, oil bulls, they say, look, Saudi Saudi Arabia in particular has great incentive to prop up and give a floor to oil prices based on the fact of, uh, that they're planning to uh, do an initial public offering for Saudi Aramco in the near future. What do you say to those traders who still have faith that there will be a floor uh, because of those political incentives? Well, I think that the Saudis, you know, bristle at having to go it alone. They've they've been carrying most of the load since the beginning, and now they're having to deal with uh, potentially covering, as the as the oil minister put it, uh, Libya and Nigeria, whose production, in a surprise, I think, to the market and certainly to OPEC and the non-OPEC participants, uh, have come roaring back. They're back to really full output uh, from being near zero. Uh, for the better part of the year or two. So the, in the, historically, the, 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 the Saudis reach a point where they won't do it, and they instead turn crash the market by oversupplying it. Now, this Saudi Aramco thing is a new wrinkle, and with the new crown prince and the new oil minister, uh, they seem more committed to, to engineering a higher price, potentially through more cutbacks. But boy, it, it's a bitter pill for them to swallow. And historically, in, in my experience with them, they don't swallow it. Well, John, uh, to bring into the uh, the equation the swing producer, the United States, and its role in uh, not only domestic energy markets but now international energy markets as an exporter. Well, that, that, and that is the big monkey wrench that has also been thrown into this OPEC, non-OPEC agreement. Um, and also, too, I keep pointing out to everyone that while the shale players get all the glory in the headlines, you know, like a big wide receiver on a football team. We've had a lot of production increases from the Gulf of Mexico this year from projects that have been on in the works for years. And that production is not going away no matter how low prices go. And a lot of the shale players have hedged a lot of their production when prices got back up into the That production is going to be a lot more stickier this time around. And as you said, Pim, uh, China in particular has sought out the U.S. shale producer oil, and we've been, been exporting uh, increased amounts uh, to China. Again, in a battle for market share with the Saudis, 
that they bristle at historically, that they don't accept and that they end up fighting back on. So that's that's the issue I have with all of this. And I, and I really think there's a potential right. uh, for the pr- uh, production war to break out, not a price war. You know, uh, John, uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on some of these leveraged shale producers in the U.S. Uh, you know, they, they are thought as the swing producer and having the upper hand, frankly. But uh, if you look at the debt markets, particularly energy junk bonds, they have dropped more than three and a half percent so far this month. And there's a lot of concern that we're going to see another wave of carnage. What's your uh, what's your feeling in that space? Have we seen largely the washout of the weakest players? No, I, I think if we get down into the upper 30s, uh, there'll be more of that to come. Uh, enough of their production, any of these folks, uh, to get them through, I think, another episode like that. Um, and I think All right, we're gonna, John, we got to break in. Uh, John Kildiff, I want to thank you. Breaking in, uh, John Kildiff is the founding partner of Again Capital. Let's uh, get a little bit more detail about this uh, potential deal. I want to bring in uh, Dina Kamel, a Middle East aviation reporter, joining us uh, from Dubai, and uh, Michael Sasso, airline reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from Atlanta. Uh, Dina, maybe you could speak a little bit about what does Qatar bring to any kind of shareholding and what is the connection between Qatar Airways and global air travel? Yes, hi there. Um, Actually, this is not the first time that we are seeing Qatar Airways go into this type of venture. And uh, already in in April, we saw the Qatar Airways CEO, Akbar al-Bakr, say that he was thinking uh, of adding one more acquisition to his portfolio uh, of, you know, many, many uh, airlines and many previous purchases. Um, So today's announcement is actually one in a series uh, of acquisitions that the airline has already done. Um, The the first one was, uh, uh, you know, uh, gradually building up a 20% stake in British Airways uh, parent, IAG. Uh, they've also recently taken up, taken up 10% of uh, LATAM. Um, so they've been pursuing inorganic uh, growth. And yeah. this latest interest in, in Americans sort of completes the, the triangle of, of trying to capture um, traffic from across the Atlantic. Uh, I want to bring in Michael here. So uh, Qatar Airways has been criticized by American Airlines for unfair competition. What does this potential investment in American Airlines do uh, with respect to the rivalry here? Well, I, I think that's the big question. Um, there's some, you know, I've heard some analysis that, that maybe uh, Qatar is, is trying to get a foothold in this controversy in the United States. Uh, you, you may be aware that all three of the U.S., major U.S. airlines, including American, Delta, uh, and, uh, and United Airways, uh, United Airlines, all have uh, trying to bring a trade case against Qatar and Emirates and Etihad uh, Airways, suggesting that they're unfairly uh, flooding the U.S. market with, with cheap flights, uh, that, that they're being subsidized by their home governments. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a thought out there that maybe this could be some uh, attempt to influence that process. Uh, some, uh, could they have some influence in 
with the Trump administration or some influence with American, uh, maybe. Uh, but it, it, that's just kind of spot analysis. Well, yeah. we're not exactly sure yet. Well, and you talk about the conflict between uh, Qatar Air and some of the uh, U.S. airlines, but the conflict with Qatar goes much beyond that. I mean, recently we've seen a lot of news coming out of uh, the Middle East with respect to Saudi Arabia and its uh, worsening relationship with Qatar, uh, as well as with the U.S. Dina, can you speak a little bit about how this type of investment complicates that or is uh, perhaps despite that or as a result of that? I mean, just to remind uh, people, Qatar Air is state-owned. Yes, that's that's correct. It might be a little bit too early to say at, at this point um, how this plays into the um, geopolitical tensions uh, that, that Qatar is facing at, at the moment. Um, as you correctly pointed out, uh, Qatar, the nation, is, is being isolated uh, by four other neighboring Arab countries, Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt, um, uh, Bahrain, and the United Arab Emirates, um, for, uh, who, who accuse Qatar um, for supporting um, Islamic terrorism and, and, and financing extremists, um, which are allegations that, that Qatar denies. Um, and, and, and in the meantime, uh, they've also closed down um, their airspace to all Qatari uh, flights. So this has put Qatar Airways uh, in a very difficult situation. Uh, it's, it's had to face longer reroutes, very expensive reroutes uh, around that airspace. Um, so the idea that it's now trying to um, solidify its partnerships, you know, with One World members um, and, and uh, basically trying to diversify its uh, streams of, of, of revenue so that it's not reliant on any one part of the world too heavily um, uh, for where its earnings come from. Um, and I think that move ties in with, with the political pressure that it's, that it's facing here in, in the region. Uh, already it's been denied uh, access to um, 18 destinations in those four countries that are uh, imposing the ban. So there, there's a sense that it, it wants to diversify and, and, and spread itself across uh, regions. Well, I want to thank you very much, both of you, for uh, really giving us uh, some detail about what is going on. Dina Kamel is our Middle Eastern aviation reporter. She joins us from Dubai. Michael Sasso, our uh, airline reporter, coming to us from uh, Atlanta. Let's turn our attention now to the big topic of asset price inflation. Brendan Brown is the chief economist and head of economic research for Mitsubishi UFJ Securities. He is also the author of A Global Monetary Plague, Asset Price Inflation, and Federal Reserve Quantitative Easing. Good to have you with us here in our studio. And Thanks for be being here. here. Thank you. Uh, maybe you just can begin by talking about this idea of bubbles and asset price inflation. How is it defined and how should we be applying those concepts to what we see in the stock and bond and commodity markets currently? So asset price inflation is the unleashing of irrational forces in markets um, by monetary distortions. And what I mean by that is interest rates being pressed way below a natural neutral level. And to um, expand on why that's happening, I would say over the last 20 years and especially the last 10 years, pressure of globalization, China coming into world markets pushes prices down, which in general most people gain from in terms of their real living standards. 
the Fed and the other central banks have been trying to get to this 2% inflation standard. Goodness knows where it came from. It's certainly not in the Federal Reserve Act. Nobody's ever mandated 2% inflation, but the Fed somehow, out of its own wisdom, decided 2% inflation. But if you aim for 2% inflation when the natural rhythm of prices is actually downwards, you can only do that by, by pushing rates way low, very low, and keeping them very low. And that's, that creates a desperation for yield, and that desperation for yield shows up in all these areas of, of, uh, of, of irrational forces gaining the upper, upper force. So, Brendan, it's been about five years of people warning about asset price bubbles and the potential uh, demise of the financial system uh, when they collapse. And here we are, 2017, the Fed is starting to hike rates, and you do see stock prices climbing higher while there are some jitters in the high yield bond market, for example, because of oil prices. We have not seen an implosion. Does that mean that it's not going to happen? I would make two points here. I think, uh, first of all, the monetary um, force or the monetary, monetary distortions, disequilibrium, I would say have actually been growing um, in the last 18 months. First, we had for the Yellen Fed last year walking back from rate rises because of a China shock. This year, we've had the um, surprise that the Trump administration did nothing to change matters in the Fed, whereas there were expectations that they may. And we've had the ECB and the BOJ merrily going on with their, their QE expansions and negative rates, although there had been some expectations that would all slow down. So if anything, we've had an increase in this monetary stimulus. As we listen to some of these uh, policies in these House and the Senate hearings, how much do you pay attention as an economist? How much does this weigh on your growth outlook and uh, the way you assess the U.S. economy? Well, the, whether the fiscal um, plans and the tax cut move ahead is one of the factors that go into the economic outlook. But I do tend to think that the importance of this um, shouldn't be exaggerated. Um, at best, it looks as if what we're getting here is going to be some sort of temporary tax cut um, rather than permanent. Um, but haven't you've written that uh, they've that the Trump administration, as well as the Republicans in Congress, they've squandered an opportunity uh, in another area, but maybe this is all conflated in some way. Yeah, I mean, if one looks at the trio of what's making up the Trump administration program now um, of infrastructure, tax reform, health, the big gap in all of this is, is of course, anything on the monetary side. We have a, a tremendous, as we were discussing earlier, monetary distortion going on at the Fed, um, aiming for 2% inflation target, long-term interest rate controls, and nothing is on the foreseeable agenda to change any of this. And that's, uh, you know, you only have to read Mil Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom to, to realize that um, any agenda of economic reform and unleashing uh, forces in a capitalist economy has to start with monetary reform. You know, I, I'm struck by what uh, J.P. Morgan's Bob Michael said earlier today on Bloomberg Television, which is at some point, some of some of President Trump's policies will get passed and there will be an upside surprise with health care, for example. Health care is almost 18 percent of the U.S. economy. We do see health care uh, shares surging on the prospect that there will be some solidification of what the outlook is for health care in the U.S. But you're saying uh, any step they take will probably be incremental and won't necessarily have uh, that material of, a, of an impact on the uh, on the growth outlook? Uh, in terms of overall growth outlook, yes. I mean, I think the, the, the main growth positive aspect of the Trump fiscal agenda is the cut in corporation tax, which will um, bring some economic activity back from low 
tax jurisdictions abroad, whether it's Canada or other places, and, and that in the longer term will boost economic activity in the United States. By the way, that will put some pressure upwards on wages. I mean, these, these measures to boost production in the United States basically come to increase demand for U.S. labor. It's, it's not necessarily going to be as positive as maybe Wall Street imagines for earnings and equities. You know, I've heard so many people talk about what will or won't boost inflation, and so many people have gotten this so wrong. Do you find yourself questioning what will actually lead to higher wages, just given the frustration and lack of understanding of why they have remained so stagnant? I don't don't believe that um, wages are the key element to look for in an inflationary process. I think the inflationary process is, is in this cycle is asset prices, and I think also we have an inflationary uh, dimension in goods and services markets, but it's not immediately apparent. And what I mean by that is that um, if you measured inflation today in the United States in the same way as it was measured in the 50s and 60s or any time before that without all this hedonic price adjustment, today's inflation rate would be 35 to 4%. Um, so, so there is an inflation there. If you have asset price inflation, there's always going to be goods inflation alongside because it's part of the same phenomenon, but it's, it's not necessarily immediately apparent. Last question. Uh, we are awaiting comments from President Trump, who is meeting with uh, big uh, technology company leaders in uh, Washington. I just wanted to get your sense, uh, Brendan, going forward. Do you agree with uh, guests on previously in this program that we have five more years in this credit cycle? I, I I would never say anything like that. I think we're we I hate to say we're in a new a new era or new experiment, but the enormity of this particular monetary distortion with every major central bank pursuing uh, uh, or having huge balance sheets and interest rates so low low is something we haven't encountered before. We have encountered asset price inflation before, but the sample size of asset price inflation is small. It's probably eight in the last hundred years. And to find one with this degree of enormity of of distortions, I can't find. Um, Moreover, this is happening in an era when there isn't much good economic news. You know, previous asset price inflations have mostly been accompanied by fantastic economic good news, whether it was the late 1990s or the late 1920s. This time there isn't good news. So so there's a lot of differences. But if you ask me for the bottom line, I think the the denouement is going to be more within the next two years rather than five years. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Brendan Brown is Chief Economist and Head of Economic Research for Mitsubishi UFJ Securities. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.